0: Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Associate Pastor Henry Coates. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org.
1: Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts, that we may receive what you have revealed, and do what you have commanded. Since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, amen. John 1, verse 35. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, "'Look, here is the Lamb of God.' The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, "'What are you looking for?' They said to him, "'Rabbi, where are you staying?' He said to them, "'Come and see.' They came and saw where he was staying, and they they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, "'We have found the Messiah.' He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, "'You are son of John,' and you are to be called Cephas. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is the word of God. Hello, everybody. It's
0: really good to see you today. For a couple reasons: one, I just like seeing people in church. Two, it's really cold out there, and you made it anyway. So, well done. Thank you for joining us in worship today. I have the real pleasure to uh, really dive in deep into our scripture with you this morning. So, I encourage you and invite you to open up your Bible, uh, back to John chapter one, and. We'll be getting to that in a little second. I want to offer just a couple introductory words. And if there's any time that you can't hear me, all right, just pull on your ear to give me a little single, all right, and I'll make sure that I'm speaking into the mic. Today I want to talk to you a little bit about what it means to steward our time as witnesses to the life-saving power of Jesus Christ. To begin with, I want to ask a question. Do you think the word evangelism is scary? Does anybody think it's a scary word? See, a couple hands up, some not, but some definitely are. It, 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 some people think it's scary, some people don't. And regardless if you have baggage with the word evangelism or not, let's admit it. Sharing our faith can be intimidating. And I just want to be, give you a confession sometimes I find it really hard to tell others about Jesus and how he saved my life. And you might think that's a rather concerning thing for a pastor to admit, but I believe strongly that preachers should tell the truth always. Sometimes I find it really hard to tell others about Jesus. I think about the old Christian rock song by DC Talk. What will people think when they see that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find that it's true? I'm not alone in this feeling. A lot of folks out there have negative opinions about Christians and our churches. And they think that evangelism is shady and manipulative. So many of us hurt deeply because our kids and grandkids want nothing to do with Christianity, even with the church they grew up in, let alone strangers. Now what are we to do about this, this very real thing? I believe that we start by asking some pretty basic questions. What makes a church a church? Is it the weekly worship services? Is it the programs we offer? What are we trying to accomplish uh, as we are the church? What do we try to accomplish being the church? Is it so that we're nice to strangers? Tip our servers well? Become better citizens? Think about reality more thoughtfully and generally enjoy life more? Now these are all nice things, right? They're all nice things, but is there something more to it? Is there something more to it? Why we are here? Who is the church of Jesus Christ, and what is it for? I think that the church exists as mission. That the church is missionary by its very nature, to quote Vatican II. And what I mean by that is that we exist as people called by God the Father, formed in Jesus Christ, to be sent out into the world by the Holy Spirit to witness to God's power made flesh in Jesus Christ. So by mission, I mean calling, forming, and sending. But there's a lot of confusion around the word mission today, and in turn, the word evangelism, something that a lot of people find scary in theory and intimidating in practice. Now throughout this sermon, I use the words mission, witness, and evangelism pretty much interchangeably. Though I do admit they're not exactly the same thing. As a professor of mine once pointed out, one still finds definitions that speak of mission as an activity done as agents of the West when we plant churches in non-Western cultures, and evangelism as the activity which strives to make people who are culturally Christian into active and practicing Christians. Truth be told, North America is the greatest mission field in the world today, where the cause of Christ is so often hindered by the vestiges of a long-gone Christian culture, if our culture was ever Christian to begin with. Ours, I believe, is not a Christian culture. It is a secular culture that doesn't understand the need for God. We often find mission listed next to things like worship and service when we talk about what the church does. But here's what I think. Mission is what the church is. Mission is more than a program. It is who we are. We are the sent ones of God. We are the ones sent God to witness to the grace of Jesus Christ. Now today, what I am seeking to do in this sermon is lessen our anxiety about talking to others about Jesus. To do that, I'm going to use examples from our scripture today in John's Gospel that tell us something about how God uses our practical witnessing, our practical evangelism in the world a world that we are sent out into with the charge to point others to Jesus. That's what it's all about, to point others to Jesus. He's sitting up there. You see him in the stained glass? He's sitting right there. He's sitting right there. He is here with us now. We are called to point others to Jesus, even those who are incredulous about this whole Jesus thing. To begin with. Telling others about Christ is part of our calling as Christians. Intimidating, yes, but we don't need to be afraid. Jesus is with us all the while, and critically, Jesus already sees and knows the people we are witnessing to. So at this point, I invite you to open up your Bibles, and I want you to take a look at the last third of John chapter 1. And the last third of John chapter 1 is about people finding Jesus, or more precisely, it is about Jesus finding people through his people. Jesus finds people through his people. We are the instrument that Jesus works through to draw people towards himself. We are the sent people of God who are on a mission. The three means of witness that are on display here are to use the framework of biblical scholar Dale Bruner, preacher evangelism, family evangelism, and friend evangelism. I'm highly indebted to uh, Dale Bruner and his commentary on this work because he really captures it well. And I'm going to work through with you some of what is here. Let's take a look at verses 1, chapter 135 through 39. John the Baptist is standing with his two disciples. And John the Baptist sees Jesus. And as he sees Jesus, he preaches Jesus to his disciples disciples to John's disciples and John says look the Lamb of God and his disciples hear John they get the message and what do they do they begin to follow Jesus the word is preached the people hear and the following commences and immediately Jesus asks his new followers a question what are you looking for I got really close to the microphone on that because I think it's a really profound question. What are you looking for? So in John's gospel, these are the first words that Jesus says. We've been waiting for, for, for nearly 40 verses up to this point, and these are the first words Jesus says, and the first words that Jesus says are a question. What are you looking for? This is one of the most profound things a person can ever be asked. As Dale Bruner puts out, he says, Notice, Jesus did not come up to them uninvited and ask this question. This question question was asked after they already started to follow, after they already made the decision to find out more what this Jesus guy is about. Jesus' evangelism is more human and humane than we might expect. And the disciples at this point respond kind of bluntly. They say, well, where are you staying? Disciples want to be with Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? Come and see. Come and you will see. Jesus does not preach the gospel to these seekers prematurely. He does not answer their question of where he is staying by responding, I reside in your hearts if you repent and believe in me. No, that's not, what, that's not what Jesus does. He acts and he talks normally to them and he takes his time. But Jesus does give an invitation, a courteous invitation, not an invasive one. He says, come, come and see. And then the Bible tells us they accept this invitation, and so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. And then John adds a little note there. It's a very telling little historical detail. He says it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. This little detail is telling. It tells us that the church was born in somebody's house at 4 p.m. in the afternoon when a bunch of folks got together to talk with Jesus. I don't know what day this was, so I challenge you every day at 4 p.m. to say a silent prayer of thanksgiving for this birth of the church. These two disciples are no longer followers of John the Baptist. They're disciples of Jesus Christ. They heard John's preaching about Jesus, took that preaching as a summons to check out this Jesus guy, and then Jesus met them along the path. Note the Bible doesn't tell us about their conversion experience. It tells us that they encountered Jesus. The encounter with Jesus is enough. Jesus changes everything. And that's why our mission is to point to him and nothing else. Look, the Lamb of God. What are you looking for? Where are you staying? Come and see. And they saw, and so shall we, Dale Bruner notes that preaching evangelism begins everything, family evangelism continues everything. Preaching, Preaching initiates, relationships carry and sustain. When, through preaching, women and men meet Jesus Christ, their most instinctive and natural move is to tell their family, the people with whom they live. Andrew, one of the two who heard John's preaching and followed Jesus, he did just that. Take a look at John 1, 40 through 42. It shows us one of the most basic facts about how we live out our mission, how we practice evangelism. Evangelism is simply finding family and friends, that is, people we know best and are closest to, and one by one in natural, friendly Unforced ways bring them along. Andrew's evangelism with his brother wasn't unnatural at all. He didn't say to his brother, accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior or else. He just told Peter honestly and with apparently unfeigned enthusiasm, his deeply happy recent discovery. We have found the Messiah. And then just as naturally and without any recorded pressure, Andrew brought Peter along with him. He didn't just send Peter to go meet Jesus on his own. Andrew brought Peter to meet Jesus personally. You know, one of my favorite little uh, points of trivia about Andrew is that he's never mentioned in the gospel in any circumstance except for him bringing someone to Jesus. Andrew is remembered in Scripture because he brought people to Jesus. Peter's remembered for all sorts of things, including betraying Jesus. But Andrew is remembered because he brought people to Jesus. When the relationship is real, when the time is right, tell others about this Jesus you've encountered. Let it be natural and not forced. And then, if the person is interested, Accompany them to the place where Jesus is staying. Take them to church. What if they say no? If the relationship is genuine and not based on the idea that you're building a relationship with someone solely to convert them, then that relationship will thrive. And Jesus will continue to use you as your witness evangelism is a process a continual process not always a decisive stroke jesus hasn't given up and neither should you as we shift to john 1 43 through 44 philip comes on the scene now he was from the same town as peter and andrew but we don't hear about them introducing him to jesus Rather, we are told that Jesus found Philip. Jesus found Philip and said to him simply, follow me. And apparently Philip did just that. Encountering Jesus is what changed Philip's life. The encounter itself. And I want to quote Dale Bruner. He says, thus we are taught In this brief passage that Jesus finds people directly. So not only should we tell our friends and family about Jesus. But also talk to Jesus about our friends and family. Not only do we tell our family about Jesus. But we tell Jesus about our family. You you see what's going on here? Jesus can handle it all. Jesus takes it all. Jesus sees it all and then philip goes to his friend nathaniel to tell him about jesus and nathaniel, and philip's really excited you can imagine the conversation between one guy who's really excited about something and the other guy who's kind of like eh. nathaniel buddy hey guy what's up i i met this man he's the fulfillment of scripture oh yeah yeah, well, 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 who is he? What's so special about him? Well, he's Jesus! Jesus! He, he's the son of Joseph. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, Nathaniel, Nathaniel is a smart guy. He's an academic. He likes his books. He's also a bit of a classist snob. I'm from New Jersey. I'm born and raised in the Garden State. And I'm, normally I hide my accent, but I'm going to let it all out for you this morning. I was born in the Garden State, raised there for 20 of my 30-something years so far. If you know anything about folks from New Jersey, most of us are fiercely proud about our home state and will defend the honor of our homes at the drop of a hat. Tell us, that we're the armpit of New York, and we will fight you. Lots of people are proud of the place they're from, and teasingly deride other places. If you're from Philly, you don't like Pittsburgh, and vice versa. If you're from Boston, you're not a fan of New York. If you're from New Jersey, you don't like anyone. Living here in Chicagoland, I learned that St. Louis down the river is the rival city. You see, it's fun teasing. And I could easily hear myself or friends of mine saying things like, He's from Long Island? Has anything good ever come out of Long Island? See, there's a similar dynamic going on here. Nathaniel, we are told later in the gospel, is from Cana. Now Cana is about 10 miles from Nazareth, but Cana is a much more significant location. Nazareth was a backwoods, middle-of-nowhere, insignificant Galilean town. It is a small agricultural place, never mentioned in the Old Testament, never mentioned by any ancient scholars. And Nathanael, for one reason or another, didn't care much for it or for anyone who came out of that. So, not only is Nathanael a bit classist, he's actually a little bit racist here, too. But notice what Philip does. He doesn't rebuke Nathanael for his disrespect, for his flippant attitude, for his quite rude assumptions about Jesus. No, he invites Nathanael to do what? To come and see. And Philip is not pushy with the somewhat skeptical Nathaniel, nor put off by his friend's churlishness. Rather, he makes the simplest suggestion let's pursue your question further together. He doesn't send Nathaniel off on his own. He doesn't say, hey, Nathaniel, you go and check out this Jesus guy, you jerk. No. He invites Nathanael to come along with him to meet Jesus face to face. And so they do. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now that's crazy of Jesus to say, right? Uh, Who there's no deceit? Nathanael was just straight up prejudiced against Jesus. Said that guy's from Nazareth, he's useless. All right? But what does Jesus say? Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, because Nathanael knew what he said, right? Nathanael knows what's going on in his heart. He said, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answers, I saw you. Come and see, Philip says to Nathanael. And Jesus, saw. Jesus sees Nathanael. Jesus welcomes Nathanael. And Jesus loves Nathanael. Didn't matter that Nathanael was a jerk. It didn't matter that Nathanael was prejudiced against Jesus even before he met him. Jesus still claimed him as his own. Not everybody's path to Jesus is a straight line. Sometimes you get a little crooked. Sometimes you're going to be incredulous about this whole man from Nazareth thing, like Nathaniel was. And that's okay. That's okay. When the eyes of Christ are laid upon you, his gaze never, never turns. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what your past holds in it, what your fears or secret shames might be. Jesus sees you, Jesus loves you, and Jesus welcomes you. When the world says to you, can anything good come out of her? She's divorced. Can anything good come out of him? He's got a drinking problem. That family, they're just a depressed, angry bunch of people. That church, God, who knows where it's going? The leadership can't find its way out of a bag. When the world says that about you, you rest assured that you are a beloved child of the Most High God. Your encounter with Jesus is what matters. Your encounter with Jesus is what defines you. He changes everything. We are not... Where we come from. We are not our sins. We are not our screw-ups. We are not our past mistakes. We are not even our past. We are who Jesus says we are and that's why our mission is to witness to his amazing grace. The church begins with the preacher's honest enthusiasm It continues with family sharing. And it comes full turn in friendly, enthusiastic conversation. I want to say that again. That's a quote from Dale Bruner. And he says, The church begins with a preacher's honest enthusiasm. It continues with family sharing. And it comes full term in a friendly, enthusiastic conversation. Jesus finds people through his We are the instrument that Jesus works through to draw people towards himself. We are the sent people of God on a mission. So leave this place and live your life in the confidence of Christ, he who is the Lamb of God. Resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, and do not be afraid. You can share your faith. Evangelism does not have to be a scary word. For you have encountered Jesus. And therefore you, you, each one of you, you are the sent ones of God. You are his witnesses. What will people think when they hear that you're a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find that it's true? I don't really care if they label us a Jesus freak. There ain't no denying the truth. Amen and amen.